Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we talk about the latest spending plans from the UK's government, as well as what other authorities around the world could and should focus on in their upcoming spending packages, with Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, and Sophie Traherne, UK Government Relations Specialist. Welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. And again, well, it's been a pretty deranged week for news flow. I know, Will, you, you always cringe when people suggest we're living through a kink in our times, but it really does feel like that at the moment, doesn't it? It does a bit, Nikki. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've we sort of always pointed out that we're perhaps kind of understandably predisposed to always believe we live in special times. It's sort of comforting, maybe. But actually, you know, and, and if you look at history, you know, you know, many of these major crises actually uh, don't send the world in a materially different direction. You know, people often think about the difference between the aftermath of World War One and World War Two, but I think this time it does feel um, it does feel a little bit different. You know, the, the the future range of plausible outcomes from this point looks quite different. I think from uh, what it might have done, uh, what you might have guessed at a couple of months ago. Anyway, for this episode, we're going to zero in on a few specific areas. We're going to take a look at the UK political and economic context following the Prime Minister's speech in Dudley and looking ahead to the Chancellor's next week. We'll also take a, a look across the pond at the US, thinking a bit about the election campaign trail hotting up, um, but also amidst you know what, what's clearly a worsening coronavirus uh, outbreak. So. Um, I haven't just got Will here. I also have Sophie Traherne, our resident government relations expert. So thank you so much for joining us, Sophie and Will. And Sophie, let's start with you. Yes. So um, we had the, the big PM speech on the on the economic recovery this week. And he started off his speech by talking about the, the really difficult early days of the pandemic and the, and the long term economic impact, um, which will come in the aftermath. And he was fairly upfront about people's concerns over their jobs and incomes. He said that jobs that many people had in January are, are not coming back and, and furloughing cannot go on forever. And this is obviously particularly relevant in light of the significant job losses announced by some firms this week. But overall, that the tagline or the soundbite from the speech, which I'm sure you will have seen as it was heavily briefed beforehand, as well as being plastered over the podium, was build, 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 with the PM announcing a, a new deal which will deliver jobs, skills and infrastructure for Britain. And he talked about an infrastructure revolution with the headline announcement being £5 billion worth of investment to accelerate infrastructure projects across the UK. And it's this acceleration, this speed of delivery, which seemed so important to the PM. And, And that's why we had the announcements of Project Speed, a task force designed to fast track major building projects, as well as what the Prime Minister described as the most radical reforms of our planning system since the Second World War in order to get house building going again. In terms of specific infrastructure announcements, we had a range of announcements. So 1.5 billion for hospital maintenance and upgrades, 100 million for 29 projects in our road network, a billion for school rebuilding programme, and 900 million for a range of shovel-ready local growth projects in England. Other themes included sustainability and innovation. We had announcements about reforestation, conservation projects, a new science funding agency, and the Prime Minister also referenced the border net zero commitment uh, that the UK has. And he went as far as saying that 
as part of our net zero ambition, we should set ourselves a goal of producing the world's first zero emissions long haul plane. So lots of content, some new announcements, some COVID reflections and some themes which were really central to the Conservative Party from before the pandemic. And Sophie, why was that so important? Well, it it was important because it was an opportunity for the Prime Minister to really set an upbeat, positive tone, looking ahead to the future and and building on some of his manifesto commitments from December. It's even been described by some as a bit of a relaunch of his premiership, which has obviously been significantly disrupted by the pandemic. Um, Now, obviously, the the news about the infection rate in Leicester and the local lockdown was difficult and and will have slightly dampened the positive message the Prime Minister wanted to get across. But in general, you know, he he was able to cover many of the topics that were at the heart of the December election campaign for the Conservative Party, um, which have had to take a back seat since March. So that's tech and innovation, infrastructure investment, skills. And of course, the the levelling up agenda um, featured heavily in this speech. Um, I'm sure you'll remember this was a central theme of the last election. The Prime Minister knows he needs to deliver for those previously red wall, now blue wall seats in the North and the Midlands that the Tories took at the last election. So he talked about doubling down on levelling up and his mission to unite and level up the country. And of course, this all plays into this narrative about who's going to win the post-corona political battle in Westminster. Both the Prime Minister and the Labour leader, Keir Starmer, know that how we come out of the pandemic will will really define domestic politics for years to come and specifically the next few years leading up to the 2024 general election. And it's perhaps this 2024 election which the Prime Minister had his eye on during this speech, particularly after a recent poll actually put Keir Starmer just ahead of Boris Johnson um, as a more popular leader. Interesting. So sort of attention turning because, you know, I've, I've, I've heard it said that in a way, what what the Prime Minister has been fighting is almost like a general election against the Corona Party. And and so you're saying he's sort of going out there now and really putting his his agenda back at the forefront. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And Will, I've heard I've heard you and Haran talk, you know, multiple times on this podcast, our listeners will have heard about the perils of infrastructure spending being the sort of get out of jail card. But what what do you think about what you heard last week? Yeah, I mean, just hearing you two talk about general elections makes my, uh, honestly, <laughs> it makes me cringe a little bit just thinking about how many general elections we've had in recent times. I think, you know, we are, as Sophie may be able to correct me, but we are going to get a full infrastructure plan in the autumn, I believe. So we'll have to wait then for the sort of, you know, for, for fuller analysis. But I, I think the point from us would be um, about the sustainability of debt accrued fighting um, this pandemic. And and this is not just specific to the UK, but really, if you borrow in order to uh, spend on something that can actually increase your productivity, uh, then that de- debt potentially pays for itself if you think about it. So think about it at an individual level, you know, borrowing to spend uh, on your university education, say, um, is more likely to eventually pay for itself through higher earnings than a, a similar amount borrowed to splash on a delicious mountain of deep fried chicken, maybe. Um, sorry, maybe that's just my dream uh, during lockdown. But now history shows um, that actually a lot of major infrastructure projects uh, turn out to be closer to the mountain of delicious, crispy, deep fried chicken than they are the sort of, you know, the university education, if you, if you get my somewhat uh, uh, weird analogy. Okay. And, and what are some of the things to think about with respect to the recovery spending packages we're, we're going to surely see a lot more of in the coming months? Yeah, I mean, I think there, um, 
there's loads to say on this, so I'll, so I'll try and keep myself brief. But but there are a few things that were on the global agenda before this, uh, and a few that have been given a boost up the list by this crisis. Now, now for one, um, you could argue that universal health coverage is now surely up the list for some countries. Uh, you know, how can you fight a pandemic uh, if some of your uh, citizens fear the cost of actually coming forward to get tested or even hospitalized. Um, there are obviously other reasons to have you know, universal health care, you know, its proponents would argue, but this crisis has protected, perhaps uh, provided a bit, a bit of impetus to push it up the list a bit. The other one um, that stands out, I think, is kind of you know, a more even access to education for all. Uh, in this country and in many others, the coronavirus has kind of widened the gap in access to education uh, to what many would argue, I think, you know, I'd be to Sympathetic to an unacceptable degree. You know, at the extremes, uh, you can think of places like Ethiopia, where the bottom quintile of the income distribution uh, of that quintile, only 7% of people have access to a radio, uh, let alone internet, smartphones, and all the other stuff that you might need uh, for remote, co- remote education. And, and we regularly make the point, you know, that you know, if you imagine that genius is evenly distributed, then in the bottom billion people in terms of income distribution, you've got a million people of genius level IQ. Now, it's not just those people who are going to come up with the game-saving, uh, you know, game-changing innovations of the next, uh, uh, you know, few decades. Uh, but surely we want to be making the most of uh, of that sort of, you know, precious resource. One other area of interest in the context of the kind of the added need to spur growth to tackle all of this, uh, you know, debt accrued in uh, fighting this pandemic, uh, and particularly in the context of all those kind of transformative technologies that we all hear about and see on the horizon is a more complete social safety net, many people argue. Uh, So the reality is that in order to unleash the forces of the sort of so-called fourth industrial revolution, we are going to have to accept massive changes to the nature of the jobs available over the next few decades. Now, the question people are asking is, is our social fabric capable of bearing such massive strain, and again, this isn't just the UK, uh, this is everywhere, without the support of a more complete catch-all safety net. None of that even mentions the need to sort of start again with much of our energy generation infrastructure and other climate-related spending needs. Um, And not all of this can be, you know, done, you know, deficit-funded, of course. Uh, You know, taxes will have to rise across much of the world. But but the agenda is both daunting uh, and potentially transformative if it's done right or done at all. Yeah, and you know, you've you talked quite a bit about the likelihood that consumers, either in this country or others, will will surely want to save more of their post tax earnings following this event, um, which which obviously seems prudent but but bad for growth. Um, you know, have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of the things that we've got to think about, and we certainly see that certain parts of society are likely to you know that change their savings ratios more than others. It's 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 you know it's the paradox of thrift, you know, it's, a, it's a funny idea that, you know, pr- uh, consumers being more prudent is actually bad for the economy. Um, mm. It doesn't have to be too long lasting or, you know, depending on sort of, you know, government response and uh, various other social safety nets. But uh, again, I think, you know, the social safety net possibly has a role to play uh, in, in, you know, how you design that social safety net going forward may have a role to play in sort of mitigating some of that, um, some of that effect. But we have to accept you know, consumers are understandably going to be a bit more cautious following that, uh, you know, as we now have a very vivid rainy day uh, to kind of uh, to, to, to recall uh, when we're thinking about, you know, how we treat our post-tax earnings. True. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, this is all quite sort of sobering context ahead of 
the Chancellor's speech. So Sophie, what are we expecting from that? So whilst this week was about the Prime Minister setting out the, the government's big vision, the Chancellor will outline the detail and, and, and likely the fiscal underpinnings of the plan next week. This is being called a, a summer economic update and will happen on, on Wednesday next week, the 8th of July. Um, and it, it doesn't really seem to be the kind of mini budget which was originally discussed, but probably more of a statement to Parliament with with a, a full budget perhaps in the autumn. And, you know, we imagine there will be a repeat of some of the infrastructure announcements made by the Prime Minister this week, more on the levelling up agenda and, and going back to some of those commitments from the 2019 manifesto and, and of course, the 2020 budget, uh, which obviously happened earlier this year. Um, any new funding, I guess, might be focused on further COVID business support, perhaps business rate relief grants, tax deferrals, etc. There's also speculation about a VAT cut, perhaps on a set basis to support those businesses hardest hit. Um, but uh, all just speculation at the moment. Um, definitely a key moment to look out for next week. So we'll wait and see with beta breath. And, and Will, you've talked about the longer term, but what, what does the shorter term look like for the UK? Well, yeah, Nikki, I mean, we had a, a really interesting speech from the Bank of England's chief economist, Andy Haldane, this week. Um, he's someone well worth following, for, by the way, for those who are interested. He, he writes very well, speaks very well, uh, and very accessibly, I think, generally. But uh, he pointed out that the recession um, had so far proved in the UK a little bit shallower uh, and the recovery a little bit brisker than initially feared. However, you know, you know, it's not time to bring out, you know, crack out the bunting, uh, you know, to put this into context, this year still saw the sharpest four month decline in uh, in UK output uh, on record. And actually, that's both the UK and the world. Um, now, one staggering point is that if you look at the various statistics on unemployment, together with the furlough scheme, it suggests or he suggests uh, that around half of the UK's workforce is currently unemployed uh, or what's called underemployed. Uh, you know, looking globally across the second quarter, it is estimated that hours worked uh, fell, uh, were around 11% lower uh, versus uh, prior to the crisis. That's equivalent to an astonishing 300 million full-time workers. There's simply no precedent wow. for this. Uh, now, as usual, uh, yeah, so like I say, uh, have a look at the speech if you want to know more. It's full of very interesting uh, points about the UK economy at the moment. But it's good news that the recovery has so far been a little bit brisker. Uh, and the Bank of England, or certainly the Bank of England's chief economist, is feeling a little bit more... Uh, let's say, balanced about the outlook in terms of the upside threats and the downside threats to the UK economy over the sort of, you know, over the, over the coming 12 months. OK. And what about across the Atlantic? I mean, we've we've seen a worsening outbreak in, in many of the US states, but by no means all. That's obviously very worrying from a from a human um, perspective. But but well, it must also be quite worrying for, for both the US and and the global economic outlook outlook given the importance of the US and and the US consumer? Yes, I mean, certainly from a humanitarian perspective and, and probably from the perspective of the economic outlook. But, you know, much like the UK, um, there is a sense so far that the US um, is recovering a little quicker than feared so far. Um, you know, so both high frequency yeah, uh, and more mainstream statistics are telling us this story. Uh, you know, we've had a bit more evidence this week from our kind of desert island indicator, the ISM manufacturing tragic, I know. But but uh, alongside this, many are arguing that the kind of threshold to impose or reimpose full lockdown uh, in many countries, not just the US, is very high. Uh, you know, part of this is that, uh, you know, policymakers around the world now have a sense of the kind of dramatic uh, economic cost 
that full lockdown imposed. So, you know, more selective lockdowns might be, or, or, or you know, containment might be the more likely tool from here. But also, you know, many administrations will feel better able to cope you know, with, uh, with uh, you know, healthcare surge capacity now significantly greater uh, among, you know, a, a lot of the sort of PPE stories a little, a little bit further along as well. You know, nonetheless, like you say, you know, consumer confidence will be knocked. And even without government imposed restrictions on activity, uh, you'd expect to see changes to consumer behaviour, um, you know, as the outbreak, uh, if the outbreak continues in this, um, in this fashion. But, you know, just as a sort of, you know, as, a, as another counterpoint, there are already plans afoot um, for more fiscal support, and there are, you know, growing mutters um, about, uh, you know, antibody approaches to treatment um, with availability potentially by the end of August. You know, so it's a complicated picture with both upside and downside risks. Uh, keep in mind also that we'll hear a lot on vaccines over the next few months. You know, in terms of sort of testing data, both good and bad. Um, but some see a vaccine potentially approved for emergency use by health workers by this autumn, which is astonishing uh, if that does come true. Uh, and maybe even available to the general population uh, by the first quarter uh, of next year. So, you know, this is kind of supercharged timetable. Uh, and we treat a little bit of caution on this, but it shows that there is the existence uh, of an upside scenario, as well as some of the bleaker things that are being uh, put about at the moment. And anything else to add maybe on the on the US election in November? Well, uh, we want to be wary, obviously. They tend to say that you should ignore polling before Memorial Day, which is kind of at the end of May. But polls don't suddenly become mega relevant on June the 1st. Uh, they become slowly more important the closer you get uh, to November. So the point we'd make is that there's a long, long, long way to go until the election. There is an awful lot of uh, news, flow, news flow that lies uh, between here and then. So uh, again, we'd uh, we'd caution uh, caution anyone from sort of listening too strongly, too 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 closely uh, to anyone's making strong predictions about the elections from this point. We we can we can watch it uh, across across the across the pond, um, and finally, um, Europe seems to be getting its act together in in some respects, and and so far you're seeing quite a different experience of the pandemic relative to the US. It's a big question, but can you imagine? say, a, a decade ahead where European assets and, and the euro dominate the investment landscape to the degree that perhaps US assets and the dollar seem to have done for, for you know, years and, and if not decades? I mean, the short answer is yes, I could. Um, I'm not sure how likely it is, um, but rule nothing out. And our starting point here, I mean, it should always be humility, I think. You know, uh, we can't know the future from this vantage point, sadly or not. Therefore, it makes sense just from an investment perspective to cast your, you know, my investment net as widely as possible. That means I don't just want to give my money to uh, to those countries and companies that uh, are the superstars of today. You know, the reality is that changes in how the world economy is organised, regulated uh, and viewed by investors are simply too hard to predict with much uh, with much confidence so you could think of you know for instance you know the SAA which we talk about the strategic asset allocation this is the way uh, you know we organize the bulk of uh, you know client assets in terms of long-term investments that's where most of the return comes from in terms of uh, in terms of uh, in terms of client assets uh, you could think of that as, as a little bit like trying to predict who will win the premiership over the next decade or so? Uh, you don't have to, and that's the football, sorry. You don't have time to move all your money around year to year to reflect the more up-to-date information because markets move so quickly. And if you um, if you are uh, doing this, you probably don't want to put all your money on a Manchester team uh, uh, you know, winning every year. Uh, maybe Liverpool is a bit like Europe, some people are arguing. 
<laughs> so don't always just go for the recent winners. Precisely. So, so look, thank you so much, Will. Thank you very much, Sophie. And I'm sure we'll be tapping you up to to come and talk to us again after we've had uh, the chance of speech and a bit more insight from from the world of of politics. So, thank you for joining us, listeners. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.